it just feels like a tremendous privilege to have even made this film, honestly. I said to Darius when we finished this, I don't know if anyone will even see this, but I don't care. This has been life-changing for me. So I just feel like we've already kind of won something really precious, you know? Hello and welcome to the Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm David Canfield, EW's Movies Editor, joined as always by my co-host Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hi Clarissa. Hi David. This has been a pretty groundbreaking year for nominations as we've talked about for the last few years. And so rather than hear us talk about them for yet another week, we thought we would (laughs) gather a few of them and really just get their thoughts on making history, being in this industry, and this moment that we are in. Uh, Clarissa, you have moderated a panel with four pretty extraordinary craft trailblazers, uh, which we're going to give you guys a listen to in a moment. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, Everyone on this panel was chosen because they're trailblazers in their respective Oscar categories um, this year. Jamika Wilson, who, along with Mia Neal, worked on the hair and makeup in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, are the first Black nominees in that category, which is pretty incredible. I can't believe that this is the first time, um, which is crazy. And then we have Koya Elliott for Soul and Michelle Kodalank for Sound of Metal, and they're both nominated in the sound category. There has only been one previous female winner in Best Sound, which is incredible. Oh. That's another that's another stat I just don't understand. Um, and lastly, we have Genevieve Camilleri, um, who got a VFX nomination for Love and Monsters. Um, only two women have won in that category previously, and just a handful have been nominated. So these are all trailblazing women um, as far as Oscar nominations this year, and it was such a good conversation. I was really happy to talk with them. Records that are as exciting as they are perhaps depressing, but... <laughs> um, sadly, sadly, but, um, but, I, but, but I think progress is always a good thing. Uh, and I'm so excited to listen to this conversation, so why don't we get right into it? Like the premise for for this talk, um, you are all trailblazers. Um, I mean, you you shouldn't be. There should be more of you everywhere. Um, but why why do you think that this um, this is the first time that there's a, there are black nominees in the hair and makeup category? Like, what what has what are some of the things that have sort of prevented that from happening? That happening in the past? Do you think? Um, I think what's um, bringing it forward is that our actors are now speaking up and they're wanting more um, hairstylists in the trailer that can do their hair, you know? Um, that's one reason. And I just, the awareness of it all and the opportunities that we're getting now to actually, you know, be in the trailer, I think that's bringing more awareness to it all. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, I mean, why do you think um, there are fewer women that fewer women that go into sound, um, or are you finding that that's changing? I, I think it's changing. I think it's what Jamika said. You know, we have clients now that are asking for more women on their sound crews, um, more women on the mixing board, because there have been supervising sound editors, women that that have won when they were two separate categories. You had sound effects editing, and you had sound sound, which included you know, the mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I think, you know, there's more awareness. Their clients are asking like, hey, we want, a, you know, a woman, t- you know, team of strong women. You're not only women, but a team of strong women. 
um, and that includes the supervisor and the mixer. Um, I also think, you know, um, like um, Genevieve said, you know, I didn't know that there was a, a career in sound. Um, I had no idea <laughs> that there was a career in sound. So I think that is another reason is there may, people may not know that there's a career out there in sound mixing and in sound editing. Um, so I think that's, you know, twofold, like how do you start? And then, um, you know, you it takes years to, to mentor, to mentor women and mentor people. Um, and so it, it takes a while, you know, so I look back at my, my film career and it's like, oh yeah, you know, it just, it takes time. Um, the hours are long, really long hours. And um, that doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody's family. Um, so, and and I think, yeah, I think as we get, move forward and and there are more women in sound, um, then it'll just be a norm, right? It'll it'll be a norm. Yeah, right, right. What what is your take, Michelle? I I also agree that there is more more and more um, women and um, more awareness, more directors also that want to to have head of crews being women also to feel more like comfortable and more sensitive to their their approaches. And I also think um, there are more these like um, sensitivity or like uh, perhaps believing that it was like a men's career sound, but it's not true. And um, little by little, like more women being there, it's, it opens up to other women to believing, well, if she can do it, perhaps I can do it also. And that's uh, like uh, believing it and and I hope there is more and more with time, yes. Absolutely. If she can see it, she can be it. I, I mean, that's, I have a daughter and I feel like I, I, I try to think about that all the time. Um, Genevieve, what has your experience been? I, I know just, you know, just from, uh, from knowing my husband that it is very, um, very sort of male dominated field. Um, how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, probably a little bit similar to sort of the sound <clears throat> industry. Basically, when I started out, they just, I think it was just an awareness thing of knowing that um, visual effects is a job option. Um, like for me, I didn't, I didn't know. And I think maybe there was just, when I started out, there wasn't many females who also didn't know of it as a, a career. Um, but definitely sort of over the, the 10, 11 years that I've been working there, there are definitely more and more um, females joining the industry now as artists in, in all the different departments. And I think that's just more um, of awareness. Obviously, there's many more films coming out now with your massive sort of VFX um, computer graphic work and there's just more and more uh, courses available for people to learn how to become visual effects artists so I think that kind of awareness is really just <clears throat> encouraging other females to see it as an option um, and sort of how to join the industry and then I guess similar maybe to the sound industry again as well it just it just takes time um, to get the experience to step up into the supervisor roles so from when I started you know it once the people that are normally in those supervisor roles have had a lot of experience in the industry of many, many years. And from the beginning, obviously, most of them were all just males. So that's kind of why most of the supervisors are still um, male dominated. And it's just sort of taken over the, the last sort of 10, 11 years to, to build up the more female talent pool to be able to step up into those supervisor roles. So we, we are starting to slowly see more females step up into those roles. But again, I think it's just going to take a little bit more time. Um, for the artists that have sort of started out in the industry to build up their experience to get there. I think that people just haven't really been aware that like, oh, wait, it's all men. What? 
you know, and, and because of that, then they, oh, well, let's ask Koya, you know, and I mean, I hope that they ask me because they know I can do the job, but, and not because I'm a woman, but it, it, it is nice to be asked like, oh, they have confidence that I can do the job, but that awareness of, oh, the client is requesting a woman and then being, you know, Right. I mean, that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Um, do you, this question is for all of you. Do you ever feel that, um, that you're sort you sort of, whether you want to or not, are, rep- are representative of your race or of your, of your, um, of your gender? Um, because, because the majority of the other people on set or whatever aren't, don't, aren't privy to the same kind of information. I mean, for me to, to get to this point, I'm more just following my passion. Um, and what I enjoy doing. And it just sort of happened to lead me into this uh, position. It wasn't more of something like, hey, I wanna, I'm a female, I wanna, I wanna represent. Um, and it was more of just, yeah, following sort of what I enjoy doing. But I do really wanna take this opportunity just to sort of um, encourage all the other females in the industry to have the confidence to put their hand up and say, hey, I, I would like to be a supervisor. I see there's an opening there. Right. You know, would you consider me? Because um, I think a lot of that does come down to having the confidence uh, to step up in those roles as well. Because I find that a lot of people I have met along the way sort of, because it is so male dominated, they sort of sort of play down their skills, even though they're absolutely amazing artists, but they sort of play down those skills a little bit and feel like they don't have the confidence to be in those uh, higher up positions when they absolutely, absolutely do. I agree. I, I think my own confidence has when I started supervising, my own confidence went up because I saw that other people were believing that I could do the job. Whereas before I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll never supervise. That's not my, not my path, you know, I, and, um, and I, I think you're exactly right. Like the more you do it, the more confidence you get. And then, you know, being asked like, oh, they think I can do the job. Oh, I, of course I can do the job. I know how to do this. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I agree. Yes. Um, following my passion that that's, I agree with you. Hair is my passion, doing hair is my passion. But for me too, also, because I'm not that, ex- I wasn't that experienced with television and film. I always, being a minority in the group, I just always ask questions. I go to the head, department head, and ask a million questions. And hopefully, you know, they're open enough to share that information with me. And Fortunately, I've been blessed to have that. And they have, you know, even Sergio Lopez, um, he did Ma Rainey's makeup, Bio's makeup artist. He's a mentor of mine as well, because when I first started during hiring, he supervised Shonda Rhimes um, television shows. So he was a part of the hire. And I just looked to him for all the information and looked upon my peers um, for the information. So, yeah, passion, my passion. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing a through line here. Um, passion and curiosity and and building confidence, um, which which I think um, is super important for 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 everybody, but but particularly for for women to succeed in careers that aren't um, aren't always always uh, uh, female friendly. Um, what is the best advice that you've gotten? Um, career advice, and then also what advice would you give um, as far as women and and, and people of color who um, who want to get into your industry? Well, the first advice was from my grandmother, which was another mentor of mine. She told me to always do your best, no matter who's watching, and to treat others how you want to be treated. So taking that along with me through my career, I um, suggest that, you know, that you follow your passion, um, 
that you do, you, you get you some mentors and you don't have to know the mentor. Uh, it could be somebody that you admire, but you know, pay attention to what you love about that person and add that to your life. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions, you know, um, and get your education, you know, and uh, continue to follow your passion. For me, uh, sort of I worked at a bunch of different studios and there was a few people along the way both sort of said the same thing to me, which was just keep being you. And that kind of um, really just stuck with me. And I think that's, it's really true. Is this, if you just keep being yourself and just trust what you're doing, um, I think that kind of just gives you the confidence to, to sort of continue on down your path. And for me, that, yeah, that really just stuck with me. Um, just believe in myself and, and my skill and not to sort of, um, you know, uh, belittle yourself, I guess, and sort of say, oh, no, I'm, I'm terrible at this. It's just like, well, if you are, then just keep practicing and get me better. And then you, you sort of like you have your confidence uh, in your skill and you're like, no, I, I think I'm doing a really good job here and, and sort of, yeah, continue on from there. But also the other biggest thing is um, me and visual effects. It's such a team-orientated uh, industry. And there's, it's all about being humble and knowing how to work in a team environment as well. Because um, there's no sort of single person. Every single second of the film that you build is made up of maybe like 10 artists um, over a period of time kind of working on that. And so the other thing for me is, is really knowing how to work in a, a team environment. I, yeah, I would, I would say all of those things. And yeah, definitely the, the team, being a, being a team player and being a part of the team. And that's actually what, you know, a few times when I have questioned, like, do I still want to do this? The people have always, you know, brought me back. You know, it's um, freelance worlds. So you have to be on your A game to be asked back. And um, so the team is very important. Definitely working with the team. Um, I, I would say, too, one, one piece of advice I got when I first started, um, um, was to not let your personal relationships fade away because the hours can be so demanding. It's really important to, you know, to keep up those outside relationships because those, those really nurture you and feed you um, when, you know, when the going gets rough. Um, and the other thing I would say is uh, surround yourself with a good partner, like have a partner that, that understands you know, um, and supports you. That That's huge. I, I couldn't be doing this without my husband, both his confidence in me, um, his pep talks, and, and just understanding that the hours are long. And, and um, you know, it's a partnership with raising, raising our son and, um, you know, putting in what we need to put in. So, you know, happy life at home. Absolutely. That's so important. One advice that was also given to me was, uh, yes, of course, following the passion. Um, having patience also and also uh, sometimes when i think of failing sometimes we think no 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 we don't want to fail but uh, an advice is it's okay failing sometimes it's not like the end and then it's like a, a path also you can fail but then you can also do another thing and try to do it better and try to to do it better each, better each day so yes to follow your 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 passion and to be patient and to have the confidence also and to be surrounded of great people also helps a lot <laughs> with that. 
I I agree that that's the my biggest lesson that I've learned since becoming a supervisor is it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. I think I stayed a supervising assistant for so long. I loved the job, but I think I was just really afraid to to fail and make mistakes and well, it's a freelance world. So if I make a mistake, I'll never get hired again. And I just learned in the last few years that you can make mistakes and that's how you learn and that's how you grow and that's how you get better at your at your job. I, I would definitely pass that, that advice along. And Absolutely. That's how we grow from yeah. our mistakes, you know, and just dust yourself off and pick yourself back up and go for it again. You know, even with your goals, you have a goal, set your goal. Once you reach a goal, set a new goal, you know, to take you higher into the direction of where you want to go with your career. That's another one too. And just always um, work on building your craft. That's what I do. I think owning your mistakes as well, when you, you know, you do make something wrong, just owning and say, yeah, you know what, that was not a good decision. Right. Um, I think that sort of helps build your confidence as well. You sort of say, yeah, you know what, I did. I didn't make a mistake on that one, but I'm going to learn from it. <laughs> How can I make it better? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about just the, I mean, I'll, of course, your your nominations, but also, you know, including Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell and Daniel Kaluuya and Chadwick Boseman. I mean, there's just representation on all fronts. And I and I think it's it's been such an amazing year that um, in that way. Um, how do you feel about uh, about it uh, going in, you know, pre-ceremony now? Um, how, how do you feel about the, the nominations? Uh, You're on the train with, with, with Viola. Yes, and I am very excited for everyone. Um, I think with us being in quarantine, it brought a lot of awareness to like so many things as far as uh, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, just how things are in the world. And then, you know, when I think about, you know, you sit back and you're watching Netflix and all these different outlets, you're able to see um, multicultural television and so many things that are across the world, it just opens your eyes, you know? So this is an, a very exciting year overall, I think, because of COVID and being quarantined, awareness again. It was definitely a, a year of reckoning. And um, in a lot of ways, I think just the heightened awareness has been so great. Yeah. I love it. I love, I love, you know, I love it. Uh, I love all the awareness that it's bringing. And like we talked about, hopefully it'll inspire the next generation, you know, of, of women, of bringing more diversity, you know, um, cause that's what, you know, like helps bridge the gap. Like people like, Oh, there's a career in sound in, you know, makeup and, you know, visual effects. So all, you know, cinematography, you know, all, all of the categories. Um, it's, it's such a great feeling after such a hard year. It, it really is. And just even watching the films, you know, we're just trying to watch them all, um, before before the Oscars, and it's like, oh wow, it is so great to watch different kinds of films. You know, it really is. It's, it really is. Thank you so much for joining me on this Craft Trailblazers panel. I'm ex so extremely excited for all of you. Um, thank you, Jamika Wilson, Koya Elliott, Michelle Kodalek, and Genevieve Camilleri. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice and it was amazing know. to hear everyone else's stories as well. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have my interview with Riz Ahmed, Best Actor nominee for Sound of Metal.
Welcome back. This is my interview with Riz Ahmed. Enjoy. Thanks for coming, Riz. Thanks, Larissa. I watched The Sound of Metal more than a year ago. It was right before Toronto. And one thing I was thinking about was that the themes in it sort of resonate in a different way now, um, just because the world is different. And I found myself thinking about this movie in a different way, in the way it treats marginalized communities and questions of identity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's interesting because The Sound of Metal is about a character, Ruben Stone, who's a drummer and um, he's a workaholic and he defines himself through what he does and through his relationship with his girlfriend Lou who's in a band with and he suddenly faces a health crisis and that health crisis forces him into a kind of lockdown into a kind of purgatory where everything he thought mattered everything that he thought defined him has been taken away from him and he's you know left kind of to ask these questions about how to move forward and I think in the context of 2020 and the pandemic, that is a journey a lot of people have been on. A lot of people have been on this journey of, you know, go, 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 and this is who I am, this is my life, this is what gives me meaning. And all of a sudden, the rug has been pulled from under them. And they are now in this lockdown, in this purgatory, reassessing who they are and how to move forward. So it's strangely prescient, I think, the the arc of the film and Ruben's journey is one that almost feels like a microcosm of what we've been going through as a society, you know, from workaholism to health crisis to a purgatory of reevaluation. All right. Riz, so what drew you to this role specifically? It was a script. Yeah, the script was just gorgeous. I didn't know anything about Darius, nothing about the history of the project. They had been working on it for 10 years. Didn't know that he'd written two of my favorite movies in recent years um, with Darius and Francie, Blue Valentine and Place Beyond the Pines. I just thought this is an amazing script, amazing characters, so moving. And then when I met him, I loved him. I don't know if you've met Darius, but he's just an amazing personality. Big heart, weighs his heart on his sleeve, leads by example, really takes risks. You know, for example, he decided we're going to shoot on film. Um, that's a big risk when you've got a low-budget movie, you don't have enough time anyway. It means you get two takes for every scene, really. And he kind of has this attitude of like, let's go for it. And I, and I really vibed off that. I really respond to that. I like to kind of jump in at the deep end as well. So we just really clicked. And then he told me, I want it to be for real. When you're playing drums on screen, I want you to really be playing drums. So I said, well, then shouldn't I really learn ASL as well? And he said, that's a good point. I was like, well, I guess we should get started then. And so <laughs> I spent seven months in, in every day, just kind of full-time learning to drum and learning ASL. And so, you know, as scary as that was, that process was, when I first met Darius, that, was, that challenge was part of what drew me to the project as well, the script and as well as him. Well, it sounds like it was pretty intense because it was only a four-week shoot. Um, like you said, you only had a couple takes for each thing. But after doing all of that prep work, I mean, what was it like? That really is diving in. It is, you know. And I think what I always realized shooting any film is that the challenges end up being the gifts. The stuff that you're most resistant to and anxious about ends up being the stuff that releases you. And having not much time actually was an incredible blessing because it meant we had no time to overthink anything. We're not going, you know what, let me try it this way and that way and this way. It was like, you just have to go from your gut and jump and not think. You do all the preparation and then you just go. And if it works, then we just move on. We just do one take. And I think it just focused everyone's mind in a different way. It just meant that everyone just bring in their 
a game and everyone's just kind of like not letting this get in the way of this you know right so so that's what that did i think and and i think it was similar with the sign language and the drumming as well that those big challenges that seemed so daunting you know they were challenges and it was you know it wasn't straightforward but it ended up being an incredible key to unlock the character for me yeah it just opened me up in in different ways as as an actor and as a person actually you know my sign instructor jeremy stone would always say that there's a saying in the deaf community that hearing people are emotionally repressed because we hide behind words and actually when i started becoming more fluent in asl i found myself getting much more emotional talking about things than i would if i was just using words and jeremy explained it's because you're inhabiting and embodying what you're saying viscerally and physically in a different way so you know jeremy in the deaf community in new york kind of taught me the meaning of of the word communication when i had those words taken away from me so yeah i mean i think with all these things the challenges end up being the things that push you to go to a new place tell me about some of the research you did i mean how did you sort of learn about the deaf community and what specifically did you do to make sure that your performance was authentic in that way well it's just about like any role it's about kind of doing your research meeting with people speaking with people in my case you know jeremy stone kind of you know I was privileged to be kind of welcomed into the deaf community and his group of friends in new york we became very close you know we spent a couple of hours together every day for several months and you know we attended his wedding and you know we go and hang out and go to deaf poetry slams and stuff and and it was just about immersing myself within that culture and deafness is a culture you know for many people it's not a disability it's not a lack or a loss it's a different way of being it's an identity deaf pride is something that's real and 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 wonderful and so it was about you know initiating myself as best as i could into deaf culture and learning american sign language with regards to the the fact of of losing one's hearing there are moments in the film and the story where ruben thinks of deafness as a lack and a loss and moments when he doesn't and so for those moments where he did i would use kind of sound blockers we use these kind of almost hearing aids that we'd switch into a white noise setting and place it in my ear canal and um it would emit a white noise that would stop me from being able to even hear myself speak and so that was disorienting and it was a shock on a sensory level um not being able to hear anything and communicating with you know the director on on a notepad but for those sections of the film where i think we've been starting to realize deafness isn't a loss it's something enriching it's an invitation to new connections um that he would never have made connecting even to himself in a new way for those sections i didn't use any auditory blockers and actually it was no need because we were all communicating on set in 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 sign language at that point anyway because we had a large deaf cast i mean one thing that really struck me about the movie was its use i mean of sound just in the basic sense because you really feel ruben's isolation and you feel the isolation of what it might feel like to be hearing in a deaf community and vice versa um how much of that were you aware of during the filming and how much did you not see until after you saw the final product I was aware that something weird was going on with the sound design because he told me Darius told me they'd started on the sound design 2 years before they started the film and we had Nicola Becker who's one of the most brilliant sound designers in the world gravity and and he's kind of a bit of a mad scientist um let me give you an example like often on a film set when you finish a scene they come in and do a wild track which means you re-record all the dialogue um just in case there was an airplane flying overhead and you know to get the lines cleanly recorded In this film after every scene 
Nicola would come up to me. First of all, it was weird that sound designers on set. Second of all, he comes up to me with this weird contraption that he's made in his lab, puts it against my chest and says, blink and breathe. And now hold your breath so I can hear your heartbeat. Now lick your lips, now swallow. And so much of the auditory landscape of this film is actually constructed from Ruben's you know, body. It's like literally being inside his head throughout so much of the film. And it's something that's necessary as well, because often when people are in that lim liminal space of losing their external hearing, they still have so lot of their vibrational hearing and their internal bodily processes. So it very much places you in the cockpit with Ruben as he's going through this experience. That paired with the camera work and the decisions of really kind of being, you know, with Ruben kind of turns it almost into a kind of first person movie experience, which I think helps really make it feel so visceral. Absolutely. I mean, I, I saw it in a theater. It was obviously before the pandemic. And um, now I imagine most people will be seeing it um, when it's streaming. Mm. Do you think that that will take away or make better, you know, the experience of this? Because I, I just remember that I, I really felt the isolation seeing it in a theater. But, you know, watching something at home can be a di different experience. There's distractions and, and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we can't choose, right? Again, it's like what right. the film's teaching us. We don't have control. We have to kind of accept our circumstances to some extent. But I do think that this is the kind of film that, you know, don't be checking your phone while you're watching it. Right. And, and use earphones or headphones if you're from the hearing community um if you're if you're from the deaf community then this whole film is closed captioned every print of this film is closed captioned so the deaf community can you know enjoy a similar experience to the hearing community um and that's only right when deaf talent outnumbers hearing talent on screen in this film when it is about a glimpse and invitation into deaf culture so i would say that the big thing that I'm missing from going to theaters is having the deaf community, deaf audiences and hearing audiences side by side in the theater. And this film acting as a bridge, which it has already in the screenings that it's played in. That's the thing that I'm missing out on. One of the things that I, that I, I mean, I, I enjoyed your entire performance, but I, I particularly enjoyed your scenes with Joe, with Paul Rachi. Can, can you talk a little bit about what it was like filming those. I mean, I obviously I, I haven't seen the script, but it felt so natural. So was any of that improvised or was that just a genius script or what was it? Yeah. No, it's just beautiful writing from Darius and a wonderful actor in Paul. You know, Paul himself says that, you know, he spent 35 years as a day player coming in doing, you know, a day on a project and mostly doing kind of deaf theater in, in LA. And, and he's such a wonderful actor and he never thought he would kind of have the opportunity to show what he has to offer. And I'm so pleased, not just for him, but for all of us who get to see this tremendous actor who's so experienced and has such depth of emotion, is so talented and is, is just such a teacher, you know, such a kind of almost, um, you know, the, the role that he plays in the film is almost the role he played on set, which is a bridge between the hearing and deaf worlds. Paul himself is a coder, he's a child of deaf adults. And his native language, his native tongue, his mother tongue that he grew up speaking was American Sign Language. He didn't speak English till he start, went to school as a kid, you know. And so he brought a lot of himself to this role. But make no mistake, he, the thing he brought was his incredible, immense talent. And when you're working with someone like that, it's just such a gift, you know. It's just all there and you just kind of tune into what they're, what they're doing. Yeah, I'm just really excited for the world to see what Paul has to offer, which is so much. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think him and also the the deaf cast just lent um, authenticity and all around. I mean, with your preparation, being with the community, but also you know with the drumming as you were talking about, like six seven months of lessons is not not small a small thing. I mean, did you find it easier to learn that because of your musical background, or was it harder because it was a completely different skill set? I mean, what was that like? Yeah, well, I will want to quickly mention some of the other deaf cast. So we have Lauren Ridloff, who's incredible, you know, is now in Eternals, you know, Walking Dead. We have Chelsea Lee and Shaheem, who are completely, you know, new actors. I really hope that this is a showcase for some of the incredible deaf talent out there that the film industry could kind of incorporate more into their stories. And they're not talented despite their deafness, they're talented because of it. The richness of their experience and culture and perspective brings something emotional and rooted that that we we rarely see on screen like you know, they taught me how to communicate non-verbally you know what i mean there's something very emotionally embodied about communication within that community um so i just want to say that with regards to drumming i was just really lucky to have guy Licata, incredibly patient drumming teacher who saw how bad i was from the jump <laughs> and just went okay every day we're doing every day um and uh it was a journey, man. I mean, for a long time, I was drumming the wrong way around because I'm left-handed, but I do some things with my right hand like many left-handed people do. So it was like, I mean, to switch everything up halfway through. Um, again, it's a non-verbal communication and it opened, forced me to kind of be in my body in a different way. I think something that I really learned with the drums is a similar thing we were talking about, you know, with decisions you made as an actor is, is kind of, you can't play the drums. You have to let them play you. You can't think your way to playing that stuff. It's not, this isn't going to help you. You have to kind of surrender, put the preparation in your body and then just, right. just let it do you. you How know? do you learn that? And that was <laughs> yeah. a real lesson. It was a really psych. It's a, such a, such a, you know, messes with your head so much, but it's like again and again, I find with every role I do is like, the journey you go on as an actor is the journey the character goes on in some way. And for me as an actor, I spent so much of the prep trying to headlock this preparation and headlock this story into my grip and into my control until I realized I can't. And that's what Ruben realizes, you know, he has to. It's like, I can't control this. The thing that I value most, which is control, is the thing that's the first thing to go. And actually, if you let go of that control, all kinds of amazing things can open up, which I think, you know, Hopefully something we'll all learn from this pandemic and our lack of control within it. Right. I mean, that's that's exactly what I was, what I was going to ask you about next. I mean, that is something that I think the world is going through because the control has been taken away from us with everything. I mean, do you think the film, I'm not going to say offers a solution, but do you think it sort of accurately depicts what it's like to relinquish that, whether it's your choice or not? I mean, a huge life change is a huge life change. And do you think that's... I guess, one of the, the things that people will come away with. Yeah, I hope something that people come away with from this movie is the realization that we're not necessarily who we think we are. The things that give us our identity and our sense of worth or purpose or our daily routine are things that can just shift like that. You know, again, during this pandemic or in this film, Ruben goes from being a professional musician to being and living on the road with his girlfriend to the opposite of all those things. There's something more fundamental that defines us than these circumstances. And often it's these circumstances that we used to define who we are. It's the circumstances that um, give us our tribal identity. 
I'm this and you're that. There's us and there's them. And I hope what people see in Ruben's journey, which is one way his fundamental identity transforms completely in the course of two hours, is that there's a core of humanity underneath that. And that's what we really are. And that's something we all share, whether we're hearing or we're deaf, whether we live in a camper van or live in a sober deaf house in the, in the woods. It's like in this time of identity politics and us and them, I think I, I hope people kind of walk away thinking like, huh, who am I under changed circumstances? Maybe there's a more fundamental basis to, to who we are that, that we all share, you know? Absolutely. And I, I think it's so interesting, particularly with you, because not just in your roles, but also in your, your personal activism, um, as far as, um, as far as your culture and what, um, I feel like you, you discuss identity, um, not just in your work, but also in, in everything you do. I mean, is that something that draws you to certain projects or uh, is it just something that happens to happen in, in your fulfillment of the role or? You know, I think that all art is about identity. You know, every story is answering or asking the question, who am I? You know, and as an audience member, every, every story should force you to ask that question of yourself. Who am I really? What are my values? What would I do? How am I different to this person? Huh, this character I thought was so different to me, I can relate to. So then who am I really? You know, art informs identity and your identity informs your art. And that's something that I think is true of all eyes. Just saying that if you happen to have a, um, an identity that is maybe not heard from or seen as much, then there's just much more apparent. It stands out. You know what I mean? You know, Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid, it's like, you know, that the, their identity as white, cis, heterosexual men, like that informs that story. You know, that would be a very different story if they were like black women in that, in that role. The world would interact with them differently. They'd be forced to make different choices. They'd have different things they could bring. To, it's like your identity and art, I feel like they construct each other. They're in constant dialogue. And I think art at its best can kind of, stretch our idea of of who we are uh well last question because i know you've given so much of your time thank you there's been talk about um award season oscar buzz for this performance i mean it's a fantastic performance and so um i think so understated and nat natural um i mean w what do you think about uh you know the fact that people are talking about it in this way it just feels like a tremendous privilege to have even made this film honestly I said to Darius when we finished this, I don't know if anyone will even see this, but I don't care. This has been life-changing for me in being able to step into the deaf community, being able to kind of learn these skills that open me up emotionally, being able to make these connections and friendships with people that normally we live in such a segregated way between hearing and deaf cultures and to connect with those people is such a gift. So I just feel like we've already kind of won something really precious, you know? In the experience of making this anything else other than that if it helps people to see the film you know and this amazing thing that we've we've, we've all uh, been lucky to have made together then that's that's just a bonus you know well thank you so much i appreciate your time fantastic no, movie you. fantastic performance thank you thank you Clarissa. cheers well that is all from us today thanks for joining us on this episode of the awardist and thanks to all of our amazing panelists uh, for joining us in this fascinating conversation and to Riz Ahmed uh, for joining us as well 
Please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, tell us what you think, share it with your friends. You can also head to ew.com slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race, including our three fabulous recent covers featuring Chloe Zhao, Regina King, and Viola Davis. You can follow me on Twitter at DavidCanfield97, Clarissa at ClarissaNYC1. We will be back next week with final Oscar predictions. Joey Nolfi, our awards expert, will be back to break down who we think will walk away with wins. And we'll be joined maybe by one more nominee from this year. We still have lots more exciting guests to come, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Awardist. <laughs>